Welcome to Built Modular, a Vanguard Modular podcast. We'll help you discover just how flexible modular construction has become and how it is helping make life better for real people facing real space challenges. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Built Modular, a Vanguard Modular podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We appreciate you listening along. So as the CDC urges school districts to return to -to face-to-face learning, facilities managers are facing a lot of old challenges. And one of those includes making the most out of portable classroom spaces. So with our conversation today, we're breaking down everything there is to know about bringing a portable classroom into your school infrastructure. So here to give insights is Mark Myers. He's general manager for marketing services at Vanguard, a box modular company. Mark, great to have you on. How you doing? I'm doing great, Daniel. It's great to be here with you. All right, Mark. So during all of this time working with various clients and on various projects, what has been the driving need from school districts for portable classrooms? Give us that sort of overarching view, and then we'll get a little deeper. I mean, there are really um, probably about four different primary reasons why school districts use temporary modular classrooms in particular. Probably the biggest uh, reason is the ease to ease overcrowding in existing schools. So you have population shifts, you have changes in um, space as far as, you know, there's an issue with building. And so they have to bring, you know, students from one building into another. Uh, you, you have dynamics in class sizes. I mean, there, it's interesting when you look at uh, age groups and, you know, you see a really large age group coming up uh, from the elementary into like a middle school and maybe those that are leaving the middle school, it's a smaller um, amount of students. So you get that with the overcrowding. You also get consolidation. Now, this is actually something that we're seeing a little bit here with COVID-19 where you're seeing um, some schools actually closing buildings and consolidating into fewer buildings to help save on overhead costs. And now they're looking at, you know, the fall when hopefully things begin to continue to open up and they're looking at, okay, how are we going to handle the the additional students coming back? Because they may have been coming in half time or or whatever. Uh, So there's there's that consideration. There's also new construction or renovation projects where they just need to relocate students during these projects and they tend to be multi-year projects and and temporary modular classrooms really work well because they can be installed right on the school school site there the campus uh, so the students don't have to go to a different location that being said if they do want to relocate them to a different location, modular classrooms can be set up wherever. I mean, we've put them on park property and things like that during renovations to keep the children safe away from the construction work going on. Now, over those various years, have you seen portable classroom needs change in any significant way? Have they mostly stayed the same? What has that shift looked like over the years? No, I would say that the needs have pretty much stayed the same. We don't see a lot of uh, uh, 
crazy changes in the needs, but we have seen changes in behavior um, where schools will lease depending on um, the availability of funding or they'll purchase. And it really has much more to do with availability of funding than any other uh, driving factor. Well, if there has been something that has shaken up the education world in the last year, it's obviously the pandemic. Uh, And I think it's interesting to see how portable classrooms intersect with meeting some of today's educators and students' needs. So let's start by uh, looking at how portable classrooms are integrating technology into their builds and uh, supporting technology integrations. So even before COVID, we'd seen more and more edge technologies make their way to the classroom and more of a need for integrated, uh, you know, one-to-one learning with a student and a computer and every student having a piece of technology that they can use to interact with uh, different activities, curriculum, or take assessments. Uh, And that obviously speaks to a need for robust uh, broadband infrastructure, connectivity, Wi-Fi. Um, but then as we see the ways COVID has impacted the education space, uh, it's also asked for a lot of functionality where an, uh, an in-class space can also act as a remote space or one where you can create a hybridized learning environment. So those are just a few of the examples, but how have you seen portable classrooms, integrate some of today's technology needs, whether those are COVID-related or not? Yeah, I would say that um, as far as it being COVID-related or not, I think they're kind of the same. I think uh, primarily with COVID-related, it has to do with just the the, uh, number of students in the classroom versus uh, at home. Um, In general, any more students typically have uh, laptops or iPads uh, in the classroom now that has become more prevalent with the hybrid virtual and in in-person learning uh, the other thing that you need is um, uh, the smart boards and things like that now that has been a bit more of a challenge we do provide smart boards and that's been a a big big push away from uh, whiteboards and blackboards and things like that but now that they're doing a lot of the virtual learning the smart boards are used less because the teachers are actually doing things on the computers as opposed to in front of the classroom. But I would say that the um, the broadband requirements are critical, the stability of those connections and, um, and the ability for students to be able to uh, spread out sufficiently to work on their own computers while still gaining the learning that they need from the teacher at the front of the classroom. Speaking of, how have you seen classroom size as well as flexibility of the physical space impact uh, portable classroom deployments as of late? Have you seen any, I guess, major shifts in the size of classrooms without a COVID context? Obviously, COVID minimizing or making those classroom sizes smaller, uh, but other than that, had you seen trends leading up to about a year ago that were uh, changing how portable classrooms needed to meet classroom size or how the spaces were being used? 
You know, as far as classroom size goes, uh, They've pretty much stayed the same. And, and I think one of the reasons is, is because existing structures, you know, they're not going to be changing classroom sizes. They have to figure out how to operate schools, whether you be in the pandemic or you're, you know, back to normal. And so that's kind of the same with the portable classroom business. What we've done is we provide recommendations on how to, to lay out your classroom, uh, to ensure social distancing. Uh, requirements or needs are met. Um, but what it ends up doing is it ends up requiring that schools actually have additional classrooms. And that's where the portable buildings come in because, you know, in their existing structures, they have a certain number of classrooms that can handle a certain number of students. So either they can choose to have um, uh, students work virtually or as things begin to open up, they're going to have students coming back and they got to decide is social distancing continuing to be as important and how important and do we need to add that classroom space. But overall, the classroom sizes remain the same. It has much more to do with how many students are learning inside that classroom. And we've seen schools that um, go to great lengths to continue to keep as many coming in as possible utilizing spaces that are not intended to be classrooms uh, in order to keep students coming into school. But uh, overall, as this becomes a, a longer term uh, fix, schools are looking toward adding that temporary space until they can figure out how best to resolve these issues going forward. And, you know, nobody really has 100% visibility on when this pandemic is going to end. So I think that schools were hopeful it would end sooner rather than later, but I think right now they're looking into longer term solutions to ensure that they're covered into the, you know, 21, 22 school year and beyond that as well. One other thing that I'll, I'll mention is we definitely are seeing um, private schools receiving a lot more activity as far as enrollments go and waiting lists. And they are much more interested in temporary space also because uh, while many of the public schools may be learning virtually, uh, a lot of the private schools are actually in person and parents, many parents want their children in person. And so you're starting, you do see that shift. But we view that as likely a temporary thing until the public schools come back online and having everybody in person again. And you kind of brought it up here already, but last thing I wanted to bring up with meeting today's current needs is the safety component. And I think that extends two ways, both uh, health and wellness of the space, especially as our perception of a healthy space has changed because of the pandemic, but also uh, more classic versions of school safety when we talk about keeping students safe physically in the classroom, um, you know, whether that is, uh, you know, security systems, virtual or physical. How are you seeing portable classrooms meet those safety needs today? So I think it depends on the environment where the classroom is situated. So uh, what I didn't mention previously also is that uh, classroom buildings, uh, we're seeing a, a, uh, a shift towards larger classroom buildings, temporary classroom buildings, as opposed to double wide classroom buildings, which is kind of the traditional. 
So with the larger classroom buildings, you get a bit of an inherent security improvement because the students are then not having to go outside to go from class to class or even to the restroom, whatever the case may be. It's much more of a uh, little bit of a community within, say, a, an eight classroom building that also has restrooms and potentially offices in there, administrative offices. So you have that as far as an inherent security enhancement. But you can get we can install alarm systems. We can install special windows. We can install locking systems on the doors, security alarm systems. Uh, we can also put in any sort of like bars on the windows. Like if you have a, a city, if you're in a city where you're concerned about a high risk of security breaches, um, you can also consider bars on the windows, things like that. But overall, the, the structures, the temporary building structures, although they are wood frame, they are, they are just like your home. They're just like a commercial building, two by six construction, wood frame construction. So um, they do have, they're not paper thin walls as, as some may think. So they do have a structural integrity to them as well. But my point is that if you have specific security features in your existing structure, those security features can also be included in any portable classroom building there. Uh, we do see some some push for that in in certain areas. Uh, I wouldn't say that that we're receiving a lot of requests for high end security in classroom buildings. We certainly provide other types of buildings where higher end security is required, uh, such as if you have um, a need at a jail or something like that. We'll provide types of buildings with high levels of security there. But on the classroom side, it's it's much more muted in the requirements that we are seeing. Perfect. Thank you so much for all of that timely context and uh, sort of historical context there on how we've seen uh, portable classrooms change and in many ways stay the same. Now what I want to do is break down several of the biggest questions around using, installing, and managing a portable classroom. So let's get into the nitty gritty. Uh, can you give us some more context on some of the various ways that portable classrooms are getting integrated into day-to-day -day school use? You mentioned uh, during renovation projects, uh, but you know, give us more context uh, for those kinds of deployments as well as just in general, the main kinds of deployments you see today, the ones that are most effective and popular? Sure, absolutely. We could start out with re uh, renovations or, or new construction. A lot of times the, the customer is, is really at their wits end in, in trying to figure out how to best handle the students. And, and that oftentimes they come up with the solution of it's best to just move the students out of the buildings that they're in so that there's no safety risks there and also distractions. I mean, construction brings a large amount of uh, distractions. You have truck traffic coming in, you have people coming in and out all the time, and it, it reduces that and, and continues to give the uh, students a high quality learning environment. Um, so what, we've, what we typically do is we help the client try to, to figure out a spot on their site or they might already know where the best place is to put a temporary classroom building. And oftentimes in this scenario, they're large buildings. So you're going to need a large contiguous space 
Um, if that is not available, there is always the option of multiple buildings. But typically in this scenario, they try to go with a larger structure to keep students uh, together like they would normally be in the existing building. So ball fields or large parking lots tend to be the, the um, target of those sorts of temporary spaces. Now, the one thing to really think about is, um, yeah, it, it really stinks when you take up uh, parking spaces or a ball field with a temporary modular building, um, but it's only there for a, a, the period of time where the construction occurs. And when those buildings are removed, the site is completely restored and you would never even know that there was a classroom building there. There is that benefit. And not only that, the students continue going to their familiar school campus during the renovations. And, and the most wonderful thing of all, and the reason why we do temporary buildings is we love for them to be able to move into their new uh new permanent school once it's done. And, and then we move those buildings out and we redeploy them to another school in need for maybe with a similar situation. So we can also move on to uh, some of the other areas like overcrowding or, or district consolidation. Now this is a, a, uh, it's a little bit of a different animal because um, with renovations and new construction, you have a time horizon and you typically already have funding available for those projects. But when it comes to overcrowding and it comes to district consolidation, um, there's a whole new set of dynamics because funding is often being pursued um, by the school district to try to do a capital project, build a new building, and that can be a long-term endeavor. So what they do is, I mean, regardless of whether the funding available or not, they still have the enrollment that they have to find space to accommodate. So that's when they call us up and they say, you know, we have, you know, these many students that need to be in a school building. Um, you know, what, what can we do to solve this? And, you know, then we establish parameters on, you know, the lease term and, and uh, the type of project, you know, the type of foundations and all that type of stuff to try to meet their need in the short and the long term. Cause this is, if this is a long-term horizon, they say, you know, we want to sign a lease for 36 months, but this could go 60 months or it could go 10 years. We approach the project a little bit differently than saying, you know, we know that this is going to be 24 months and out. So um, consolidation is the exact same way as overcrowding when it comes to those sort of scenarios. And that is probably the biggest reason why portable classrooms, temporary modular buildings are used on, on uh, educational facilities is for either overcrowding or, or uh, school consolidation. How common is overcrowding in existing schools today? I know we kind of talked about that earlier with class size, uh, but is this a common factor that we're seeing? And if so, in what sorts of school districts? Is there, uh, you know, a demographic trend we can highlight? Well, I would definitely say that, you know, large school districts tend to be the ones that run into this the most. I mean, you look at any large city or, or even just a school district that covers a large geographic area, there's a reason for those school districts being so big. And it has to do with population typically. And um, there's a reason that population is big. People move there for some reason. 
And so that is really a, a, a dynamic that is hard for the, the uh, administration of those dis districts to predict. Um, you know, there are definitely reasons why people move in, and then there are definitely reasons why people move out. And that's why um, that, along with funding, is one of the reasons why school districts don't just automatically build new buildings every time they, they need more space, is because that, that um, dynamic may shift in a couple years, and then you're stuck with brand new buildings that um, you can't populate. Uh, and, and taxpayers don't like that, and the administration doesn't like the stress of that type of a situation. It's and that's where these temporary buildings come in. Now, you know, sometimes you see, and many times you see districts that, that use these buildings for the long term. And temporary classroom buildings are, they have a useful life of approximately 20 years. It can go beyond that. But what, what we see is we see school districts that end up with buildings that are, are much older than they should be on a temporary basis. And that's where people get frustrated. And what should be done is either they should be replaced or the, you know, the new, new structures should be built. But there's so many uh, pieces to go into that. And, and funding is not easy to come by in these situations. And the reason why, uh, you know, I'm bringing this kind of full circle, but the reason why they go with portable classrooms, as opposed to building a new building is, Building a new building is a massive capital expenditure. Leasing a building, you're paying a monthly payment for space that you're using. And um, in the long term, it is very expensive to lease. But in the near term, it can actually make a lot of sense, especially if you have a an enrollment shift that empties half of your brand new building that you just built for, for tens of millions of dollars. I think what makes portable classrooms an engaging solution for many school districts is that they are both portable, but in many ways they can be uh, permanently portable. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's kind of a uh, oxymoron there, but you know, at least permanent for a foreseeable future. I remember at my middle school, for example, we had a permanently installed portable. Um, I think two of them actually, and they're still there now. Ten plus years later. So do you ever see permanent installs like that? And if so, what's the value proposition on going with a portable classroom in that sense versus just expanding the uh, main school itself? So there are, we can get into this a little bit because the, the portable classrooms, um, the installation is really what defines them as portable um, there certainly are structural components that you can get into on a on a more permanent installation. You can get into a steel and concrete build. We would consider that more offsite construction than terminology such as portable classroom. But in that scenario, everything is designed um, for that building to be permanent. From the structure of the building, from the uh, way it's connected to the infrastructure at the school, to the foundations, uh, uh, everything is considered to make that a uh, permanent structure on the facility to fit in with the aesthetics of the existing buildings. And it's built for longevity. Those types of buildings that are installed for a permanent uh, solution, 
they have a life expectancy similar to any sort of uh, site built construction, you know, your traditionally built structure. Uh, when it comes to the nature of portable classrooms, they too have that lifespan that could be similar to, you know, any traditionally built structure. The difference is, is they are relocated, you know, every few years. And that re relocation is what puts stress on those structures and creates a, a narrower useful life than you would for a, a long-term solution. I think that, you know, as far as your school goes, if the intention was for that building to be a temporary classroom and it's remained there on a poor, on a permanent basis, that's not the best solution. You can certainly put a temporary classroom in there and leave it for 10 years and it's not a big deal. But if it's there for 20 years, 15, 20 years, 30 years, that's not a great solution because, um, you know, the foundations weren't designed for that. The structure itself probably is not being maintained in the way that it should be because of it being a, you know, a temporary solution. It gets less attention than say the existing structures on the school site. You know, what we, what we would recommend in that sort of a scenario is for the, the uh, school to really evaluate you know, if this is a long-term solution, this this portable building to, you know, review the the foundation that it's on. And the foundation may be totally fine. Believe me, some some jurisdictions require foundations that are meant to be permanent, even for a portable structure. Um, but then also, you know, renovate the buildings. These buildings can be renovated just like any other structure. So, you know, a renovation in 10 years or 15 years can give you another 10 years out of that building. So that's another solution that, you know, if you're having a building there for a long period of time, that's a solution that, that could be considered. Because when you're pulling out a temporary building, it's costly. It, there's quite a bit of work that goes into removing the building from the foundation and return delivery to the redeployment yard and and the site restoration so when you want to pull out a temporary building you have to think about all those costs so does it make sense to take one building out and bring in a new one or does it take sense make sense to renovate and you have to consider what the condition of the building is that you're looking at there but i would say that um overall temporary classrooms are intended for a a near-term uh, use, which that near-term could be five years. It could even be 10 years. I'm not saying six months. And then when you're talking a permanent classroom building, that is a long-term, like there's no, no consideration for removing that. That is just like building your uh, site-built structure. And they look just like um, a site-built building. You know, and that's why a lot of people don't know a lot about uh, permanently constructed modular classroom buildings, because when you drive by them, you don't actually know that they are modular uh, because they go together seamlessly. And often they are finished on site as far as the exterior finish. So you can't see mate lines or anything like that. They use rooftop HVAC units. So they are nice and nestled up on the roof, which that type of stuff 
is much more difficult, much more costly to use on a portable classroom because, you know, if you're finishing the building every time you install it on site, it's finishing that exterior, that gets costly. Or if you need the crane set HVAC units on the roof every time you install that for a temporary use, it it, it is cost prohibitive. So that's why they have HVAC units sticking out the walls. Um, not everybody loves that, but that is kind of, it, it creates that balance of cost effectiveness and functional space that's used on a temporary basis. And when it comes down to financing these projects, are they always a lease project or can you rent them? Do you see any schools outright buy them? What's the most popular approach you've seen and why? Like I would say over the past 12 to 18 months, we've seen a a significant shift towards purchases. And that has a lot to do with the available government funding related to the pandemic and and, um, trying to keep the schools solvent as far as uh, sufficient funding to cover all these uh, hardships that they're running into. But traditionally, we see a lot of leasing and then they return and then they move into their new buildings. Now, I'm speaking more toward the public school arena than I am the the um, the private schools. Private schools is a mixed bag, some lease, some purchase, and it has more to do with how well established the private schools are or if there is a construction project on the horizon, they're just trying to make um, almost make ends meet on space until that project uh, is completed. So we do also have um, a rent to own program where you can basically uh, pay monthly rental rate. Obviously, it's going to be higher than your uh, than an operating lease would be because you are actually, you know, building equity in that in that building. And then at the end of the lease, you will either uh, you will own it for a certain dollar amount. So it can be a one dollar buyout. It could be a $20,000 buyout, it could be a $100,000 buyout, whatever is defined as what that buyout is going to be. And then that monthly lease rate is calculated off of of that financial structure. And um, that works for, for many people, but we don't do, I wouldn't say we do a ton of that typically uh, that tends to be more on the commercial side than on the education side. Um, And then, Yes, absolutely. We will sell buildings and we do sell a lot of buildings and we sell, you know, buildings that have been pre-leased. Uh, we, you can also call them used buildings um, and we sell them, you know, brand new. We will build you a custom building. You know, it doesn't have to be a standard floor plan and standard look. We can build, you know, basically anything you want. You want a brick exterior, you can do that. You want, you know, tons of little classrooms for some odd reason, you can do that. So um, there's there's really a lot of flexibility when it comes to sales in particular. On the leasing side, um, most modular building dealers tend to be a bit more careful about um, what sort of buildings they put into their fleet. And you want to have buildings in your fleet that you can easily redeploy quickly to schools that are in need. And so, you know, if you have a highly customized fleet of buildings inventory and a school calls up and they say, we just want, you know, eight eight classrooms that can hold, you know, 32 students apiece and you got all these chopped up classroom buildings, 
it's difficult to meet their need. So it's much better to try to mimic the um, the school buildings that they have on site already. They're they're traditionally constructed school buildings in the way that they're laid out, the size of the classrooms and things like that. And um, so that's why there's less customization when it comes to the portable classroom side. All right, Mark, it's time to get even more nitty gritty. So we're uh, putting on our thinking caps and we're breaking down the pre-installation process, the construction and installation process, as well as the maintenance and servicing side of taking care of your portable classroom. So let's walk through the pre-installation process first. Uh, One of the first steps is choosing a building, something that is going to work best for your needs, for your students' needs, and for your educators. So what do facilities managers need to take into consideration when choosing what kind of portable classroom is best for their needs and why? Well, it's interesting. The, the, you know, as you're selecting your building, you also have to think about the the space that you have to deal with. And I had mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, if you don't have a large contiguous space, you have to think about um, how you're going to break up those classroom buildings to still supply the classroom space you need for the students, but also um, fit into the environment that you have on the campus. Um, but one of the things that obviously you have to consider when you're thinking about classroom building space is the number of students that are going to be in the building. And you can only have limited number of students in each classroom. And so that kind of dictates how many classrooms you're going to need. Then you have to, you know, consider how many restrooms you need. You also need to consider, do we want administration in those buildings? And then do we need break room space for that? Do we need a janitor's closet? And then, so there's not a, I mean, these buildings are not that complicated. You know, they have typically a bunch of classrooms, they have restrooms and possibly offices in them. So it's much more about the number of students that are going to be in these buildings. And that's how you dictate the size of the structures. You know, obviously, if you're going to a a custom solution, it's a little bit more detailed in in the um, the consideration process. But for the leasing side, it's pretty much that easy. It's, you know, how many students do you have? Do you need offices? Um, There's codes that dictate whether you need restrooms or not. And then um, and then the land, you know, around it where you can put the 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 structures is there, you know, a large amount of space or small amount of space? And that kind of dictates what size building and, and uh, how it's going to be broken down. As the building is being chosen, uh, there also has to be a maneuvering of federal codes that keep these portables to a certain standard, uh, which are a little easier to manage, at least in my opinion, because there's only one set of standards. However, there's also varying state codes, which I'm sure brings up some variability. So, Are there any challenges that this variability brings up and how do you and districts work together to make sure that the portables that they're getting uh, uh, meet all needed codes, federal, state, et cetera? Well, we have a very well-versed team in uh, uh, the codes of each state that we work in and and some states are much easier than others. And um, so they, they have seal programs and you can, you know, you know what's required for that seal as long as that state seal is on there, 
then that building can go into that state. Then you can sometimes get into local jurisdictions, which we don't build to local codes. It's always to federal and state codes. But as far as the, the client goes, I mean, it's not really a big challenge on their part for the codes of the buildings. It's much more on the, the modular building dealer side because we have to consider, you know, when that building comes out from that one client and there's a client in a completely different state, can this building go into that area? And even within states, you do have to think about things like wind loads and and roof loads and stuff like that because you know on the coast you're not going to get the snow that you get in the interior of of new england or you know inland you're not going to get the high winds that you might get in the southeast or or the gulf coast so there are variations in there but typically what we do is we build to the the um the highest level of the most general code that we can for each of those states to ensure maximum marketability and maximum serviceability to our clients so that they have a good selection. Part of those codes and standards include acquiring the right permits for a portable classroom install. Can you give us more context on why a permit is required for something like a temporary portable classroom? And how do schools maneuver that process, securing the proper permit? Well, a lot of people view uh, modular buildings as trailers because they're brought in behind a truck. So I, I get that definition. But uh, truly modular buildings are, you know, it's construction. They are real buildings. When you bring in each of those modules and you put them together, you are forming a complete building. And then you throw on top of that plumbing and you have electrical connections and sewer connections and um, data connections and you have all those sorts of things. There are going to be the same sort of permitting requirements that you would have on any any typical construction project because it truly is building construction. If you get into, you know, the smaller, like if you're thinking of construction site offices or something that you're towing down the road behind your pickup truck, well, that's a little bit different scenario. But the types of buildings we're talking about are much larger. In general, they're, you know, 12 to 14 feet wide by, say, 56 feet long, maybe even a bit longer than that. So and you're putting a bunch of them together, you know, five, six, seven, eight, 10, 12. You can build over 20,000 square feet with these. And um, that's when you you got to consider. I mean, you're really changing the impervious surface of that property. You're really uh, you're going to be doing utilities and you're going to be doing sewer and you're going to be doing um, the plumbing and and all those things. So all the same permits apply. I mentioned my uh, middle school earlier and how the portable classrooms we had there are actually still there 10 plus years later. Uh, usually an initial contract term for a portable classroom, at least on the minimum side, is around 12 months or so. But we can see maximums that sometimes exceed even 10 years. So why is there such a wide range in those contract terms and how do school districts identify what length is right for them? Well, I think any school district will try to get the, the shortest amount of term possible because that's the least amount of commitment. So there's an, a negotiation factor there where, you know, you have to understand that that um, 
the space is going to cost a lot of money to put in and a lot of money to remove. So they have to weigh that amount of cost with the short term need. And what often happens is they'll say, okay, so to get the best rate and to make it reasonable for us to pay those one-time installation costs and the future removal costs, we should put the building in for 24 months minimum. And then, you know, the benefit of 24 month or 36 month is, you know, if you need the building for five years, it turns out that, you know, you're not going to be returning that building uh, in that period then all you do is just sign a renewal and and that renewal period typically ends up being a 12 month renewal they can be 24 month renewal or 36 whatever you're most comfortable with but really like a pro tip when it comes to um to uh leasing modular buildings is sign for the longest term possible. I know that you try to go for the shortest term but what you're doing is you're paying the highest rate possible when you sign for the longest term possible that you think you're going to need that building for, you will get the best rate uh, that you can as far as monthly rates. The shorter the term, the higher the monthly rates. The longer the term, the lower the monthly rates. And um, you know, many dealers, including Vanguard, have have creative programs to help uh, in those scenarios with long term leases that end up being shortened for some reason. And, and it's very important to discuss, you know, your intentions and your budget. And w- especially Vanguard, we do a very good job of putting together a scenario that works best for your financial situation. Real briefly, before we get into the construction and installation process, if a district goes with a short contract, like you said, they want to you know, remove as much uh, you know, oversight as they can from it and make it more of a temporary process. But let's say a year or two years in, they realize, hey, we actually want this for longer and they want to renew. How do they navigate that renewal process? Is it a simple re-signing of documents? Does a whole new contract need to be put together? Walk us through that process. No, absolutely. It's a it's very simple. It's a phone call to your sales representative, and then it's a, a one page doc document, typically, unless there's some non standard contract involved. But uh, as far as Vanguard is concerned, we ours is a one page uh, renewal document, so it's a very simple process to renew. Fantastic. All right, Mark. Let's get into the construction and installation process. There's a whole new set of questions for the end user as they start to maneuver this side of installing a portable classroom. Uh, Can you start by laying out where the building installation process begins? Are portables constructed off-site usually and then shipped, or are they built on school grounds? Give us the breakdown there and why such is the case. Absolutely. So, um, for an accelerated uh, time schedule, schools require an accelerated time schedule because oftentimes they, you know, well, every time schools end in, say, uh, early June and they're back in school late August, early September. And so there's a very short window to install classroom space. And the beauty of modular construction is the structures are built off site. So that stru- construction of the building can occur while the site is actually being prepared, while the, you know, any 
any foundations, the foundations are being installed and any other site preparation that goes on there, utility runs and plumbing and, and sewer hookups and all that stuff are being prepared. And then uh, those buildings are just brought right onto the site behind a truck one at a time. The units come in and um, they're installed right on the on the um, foundations. And you will see, you know, you could be there the day that the buildings are being installed. And all you see when you show up in the morning is foundations. And by the end of the day, you can walk through a building that's dried in. So uh, that is the beauty of modular construction uh, is that speed of getting that building in place. Now, granted, you know, there's still seeming that needs to be done. There's still, you know, the utility hookups and, and things like that. But as far as the quick installation, you don't have constant construction traffic and all that type of stuff on your, on your site campus. And how long does it take to get a portable installed and usable? And what are some of the factors that end up defining the length of the installation process? Well, I would say that in general, um, from contract execution to completion, it would be somewhere between 8 and 20 weeks, depending on the complexity, the customization, and depending on the site. I mean, if you have a completely flat site parking lot that you're going to put it on, it's going to be a lot easier than, you know, removing uh, tons of dirt from a, a, a hillside that you're digging into. And we'll do both. Uh, we certainly will do both. Um, but that definitely changes the, the uh, schedule. But what I will you know, reiterate is the fact that these buildings are built the exact same time that the site is being prepared. So you have that overlap where conventional construction you, everything is done consecutively. You can't start building your building until your site is prepared. And that is where the time savings really is. You also mentioned earlier that, you know, school districts often have a lot on their plates, right? So them having total oversight over this entire process uh, may not always even be in their best interest. Uh, they would like to trust a third party to deliver on installing and, uh, you know, guiding the project where it needs to go for said school district or school's needs. So how involved, in your opinion, do you think school districts tend to be in coordinating or overseeing the installation process? And is this something that you recommend they even have a seat at the table for? Or do you recommend for the most part, trusting it over to a third party partner. What are your thoughts? Well, modular building dealers kind of take that, what you've referred to as a third party. That That's pretty right. much what a modular building dealer does. We basically take the whole project from the, from the manufacturing to the delivery, to the installation, even the engineering components, and then all the site work up to you know whatever our defined scope is, we handle all the management of that. We have project managers, we have site superintendents where necessary. Not all projects are substantial, so they don't all require them. But um, I would say that you know the districts do not have to post a person on the site every single day to watch what's going on because us as dealers, we do we install over the past three years. I mean, we've installed almost 2 million square feet in space. So we know how to do these projects. It is good for the districts to regularly visit and, and you know, whatever the frequency of that is, 
it, it's good for them to see the site. It's good for them to interact with the dealer, to know what's going on, because that communication is really what makes it a successful project for both the modular building dealer and ultimately the client. And, and that's what we want is we want a well-educated client that knows what went on, but does not feel stressed out about having to handle the management of the project. Uh, we like to take that headache on ourselves. That's what we do. All right, Mark, we're getting to the end of our conversation. So last main set of questions I want to ask is about the servicing, upgrading, or preventative maintenance side of running a portable classroom. So in your opinion, are facilities operators at these individual schools trained and capable at dealing with any of the specifics of portables? Yes or no? And uh, if no, or if you think that there's a gap there, how do you make sure those teams are capable and given the resources they need to take care of their new investments? There really is not a big difference between the portable classroom maintenance and an existing structure on the school campus. So, you know, as far as the facilities teams go, they're very familiar with, you know, the cleaning processes in the buildings with, you know, changing the HVAC filters and things like that. There's not a massive amount of maintenance. These, these buildings are designed for easy maintenance. Uh, you know, there are certain things that do need to be done. I mean, the, the floors should be stripped and waxed if you have, you know, tile floors. And like I mentioned about the HVAC filters, they should be regularly changed. You know, so it's much more a matter of ensuring that 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 type of maintenance is being done on a regular basis than it is actually in training or educating the facilities team and how to do it. Uh, and I would also mention that often <laughs> when you're putting in a temporary classroom building, there are probably a bunch of other ones already on that site. So they often are well-versed in how to uh, maintain those buildings from, from that scenario as well. In the event that somebody is not familiar with how to maintain them, we have a, an awesome operations team that, that knows these buildings inside and out, and they will come out and ensure that, that the team understands how to maintain that building so they get uh, optimum efficiency out of it. How involved does a modular dealer like Vanguard get in the service and maintenance process? Uh, is it something that you have consistent oversight on? Uh, and what are some of the requirements that you set upon installation to make sure that things run smoothly? Generally, in an operating lease, the client would be handling the regular cleaning and the, the regular maintenance. You know, uh, if a light bulb blows out or or there's uh, HVAC filters that need to be changed or changing temperatures on thermostats and you know things like that. Um, what a dealer would generally get involved in is you know the more significant maintenance issues if an HVAC unit you know just goes kaput and you need to replace it or something of that nature much more significant if there happens to be you know a leak or there's a door that's not operating properly. We'll, we'll assess the situation. Our team is extremely responsive. So that's one of the keys when selecting a modular dealer is communication. If you're finding the dealer you're working with to be slow in communication, know that it's going to get slower once the building's on your site. So you want to make sure that yeah, you select somebody that's good communication because it's how, the, how we handle those situations. We have a very quick responsiveness and either we'll send out one of our own team 
or we will actually try to uh, we will actually uh, send somebody out that's much more local right in your area that lives near you to come uh, work on that building for you and and uh, and correct whatever the issue is all encompassing basically the dealers are responsible for the large maintenance items and the client is responsible for the regular maintenance and to notify the dealer in the event there is a large maintenance issue right away so that it can be resolved. When it comes to the insurance side of servicing and preventative maintenance, do school districts have to take out their own insurance on the portables or is this something that Vanguard or modular dealer would assist in and have oversight on? So insurance, uh, when you're talking about an operating lease, insurance is always provided by the client uh, as far as Vanguard modulars operating leases go. So uh, once that building is is in your possession and being used by you and you, you know, the lease agreement is in force, it would fall under your insurance for that for that lease period. And of course, managing these portables adds more pressure to the school budget. Um, You know, in many ways that is expected. It's another facility that needs to be maintained and operated. Uh, But sometimes this is monthly expenses. Sometimes these are major CapEx, uh, capital expenditures. So do you have any examples of schools managing the financing for these portables well? And can you give us some lessons on what works for them and why? Well, I think it really has to do with each individual school district's or school's financial situation. I think that there are um, large districts that that they've kind of just been satisfied with leasing for the long term because the the amount of capital expenditure that they have to put out is is just so exorbitant that they have a they view that they have a solution at this point in time. And um, and taxpayers often may be unwilling to, you know, foot the bill for the new uh, classroom buildings. And then you have those situations where schools are actively looking to uh, find other ways to solve that space need that make more sense financially for their situation. Like I said, I mean, if you're going to lease a building for 20 years, at some point, that balance changes where it makes more sense to build a new structure than it does to continue leasing that structure. But the dynamic of approvals for that financing is really where uh, the friction occurs and and the ability to actually so- solidify that financing. So as, as far as an example goes, I don't know that I can really isolate one and say, you know, this is this is absolutely the best scenario. This is the best way to do it because each situation is so different. Now, one of the things I will say is if you get a temporary building on site and you're either leasing the building or you even bought the building, these buildings are so versatile in that they can be moved from campus to campus or they can also be transitioned in and out. So if you have renovations in one building on that campus, you move students into the temporary building. And then once that renovation's done, you move them out and then you're renovating another building. Oftentimes campuses of school districts with older buildings, this is a situation that would work awesome for them because they only have to pay for the installation once. They only have to go through the construction process 
for the temporary building one time and they know what they have and they can just use that building as their needs require. So that works if you buy the building or if you lease the building, that's a great scenario. And, and one, um, one school that actually is doing that, it's actually a college uh, a university, is the University of Delaware, where they are. We, we installed a very large classroom laboratory building, and they are basically you know, renovating buildings and relocating those departments into the temporary structure until those renovations are done, and then putting them back into their awesome new space. All right, Mark Myers, I think that does it for our conversation today, but I'll just pose this last question for you. Is there anything we haven't touched on in regards to portable classrooms, whether that's how to get started, what our end users can do now to get on top of launching a new portable classroom for their school district? Any just final thoughts to close our conversation? You know, Daniel, I could talk about this for hours. Well, I've already talked for that hour. But <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, you know, there is a lot to know, but we have the experts that know all this stuff. The things that I'm telling you is, is the stuff that our uh, sales team and operation team know inside and out. So what I would say is if you have further questions or want to know more about this, definitely reach out to us. Visit our website, vanguardmodular.com. There is so much information on there. And if you have further questions, reach out 877-438-8627. We'll get you to your local sales representative and they will be able to help you out. All right. I think that does it. Mark Myers, thank you again for your time today on the podcast. Again, we've been chatting with Mark. He's general manager for marketing services at Vanguard, a box modular company. And Mark, if folks want to get in touch or learn more about how Vanguard is supporting portable classroom deployments, how can they learn more? How can they get in touch? VanguardModular.com will have a ton of information for you. And if you want to speak with somebody directly, you can dial 877-438-8627 and you'll be able to speak with your local representative and ask all the questions you have. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. Fantastic. Thanks again to you, Mark. And thank you to everyone for listening to today's episode of Built Modular, a Vanguard Modular podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and make sure that you're going to our website, vanguardmodular.com. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.